pronouncenames.com. Audrey Totu. Totu, yeah. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. We, <laughs> we, oui, oui, mademoiselle. I, th- I, th- I wish that I could at least say like, oh, hey, how are you? Or like something. I really know so little French. I can teach you right now. Do you want to learn? How do you say it? If you want to say hello, how are you? You could, well, if you want to be more casual, you could be like, salut, comme ça va? Salut, comme ça va? There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> I feel French now. Um... <laughs> So excited to be virtual world travelers this month. Yes, we are. We are traveling around the globe. We are starting in good old France uh, with Mm -hmm. our first, well, I guess this is technically our second foreign film, but because it's a new month, it really feels like, you know, we're starting anew. Absolutely. So many great recommendations that we received from you guys for international films and also just ones that we've, like, actually had on the list that are Mm -hmm. from other countries so very excited to have this like movies that raised us international film festival (laughs) yeah we're we're in our strike era and uh yeah right we're excited to to cover some new stuff Mm -hmm. but with that being said should we dive into today's film today we are covering the 2001 french classique Amelie. Yes. In the French, uh, can you say the title in French? Like the full. Let me let me look up the full thing. Oh gosh. Okay. Just to warn everybody, I'm also under the weather, so that's why I sound like this. So my French is gonna be even worse than usual. Oh no. But bear with me. The the full title would be Le Fabuleux Destin d'Amelie Poulain. Poulain? Poulain? I actually don't know. Poulain. I actually don't know what like how her last name is pronounced. I should have paid attention to the movie. <laughs> what are the two options? Because her, her last name is spelled P-O-U-L-A-N, L-A-I-N. So, Poulain? I think, I think I remember it being that one. But yeah. yeah, I've heard so much about this movie. Like, I just feel as though it's been in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when we're going to, like, art school, I feel like yeah. I'm Amelie was something that was talked about a lot, but I'd never actually sat down to watch the movie. Fun fact, I actually wrote a paper about this movie, but had never seen it before. No way. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so, how did you write the paper? I just like looked up synopses and like pulled stuff from that. It was also a class called The Science of Happiness. So yeah, didn't have to be super precise. <laughs> right, 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 right. But basically like, I, I can't remember exactly what the prompt was, but it was like, watch this movie and talk about how like, her doing these good deeds brought her like a sense of joy and happiness and like the simple pleasures and like back it up with theory and stuff that we learned. It was a class just all about like what makes people happy. And for the most part, it was like, oh, if you get enough sleep, you'll feel happier. Wow. If you eat well, you'll generally feel happier. <laughs> that was kind of the gist of it. How novel. Um, And that, oh, <laughs> if you have enough money to cover your basic needs, like, Yes, money can make you happier up to a certain threshold, but then okay. at a certain point, like once all of your needs are met, it plateaus and more money actually doesn't make you happier. But I'm pretty sure that that number is a lot higher now than when I took 
this class because the mm-hmm. cost of living and everything is so much more expensive. I think at that point it was like $75,000 a year and I think it's a lot more now. Oh, I bet. But, or that's probably for an individual too, not like Yes, a for an individual. Yeah. yeah. And one of the probably more interesting things that I learned is that if you force yourself to smile when you're not happy, then smiling can actually in the long term make you more unhappy because you're associating that physical wow. action with those negative feelings. So if you're not feeling happy, don't listen to the Charlie Chaplin song and make yourself smile because it may make you unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I learned with my college education. <laughs> right, right. I love that class because I never took it, but I just mm-hmm. heard everyone, you know, it was either that or like children of divorce that people would take in order to fulfill the like required science credit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> So I took Science of Happiness and Children in the Media. Those are my two perfect easy sciences that I took. Oh my gosh. Did you get to study like the Olsen twins in Children in the Media? No, because it was more so about like media that is shown to children. Oh, children than, in the like, media. Then like children okay. in the media. Yeah. Okay. I would have preferred children in media yeah learning about <laughs> child stars that would exactly. be an interesting class very you know psychology based but mm-hmm. in any case before i take us too far off the rails shall we talk about the numbers the numbers baby so the film was pretty low budget it is more of like an indie mm-hmm. I, at least the vibe of the film is like very indie um, not super high in production. So the budget was $10 million and they swept to the box office. They made 174.2 million. So a huge return, definitely highly rated. They did a great job. I can't remember if it like won a bunch of Oscars, but it was definitely nominated for a it ton. It was nominated for a ton. Yeah. yeah so it, it did really well internationally as well. Yeah. And I think it has something like an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. So one of our more highly rated films we've covered on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so originally, it actually, this this movie was written with the actress Emily Watson in mind, but her French wasn't up to par yeah. to do this film. And also, there were some scheduling conflicts, so he actually ended up rewriting the role for Audrey Tautou who was the first person he auditioned. You can actually see her screen test on YouTube as well. And it truly is one of those magical, like the the actor and the character perfectly aligning to become one. Like I can't imagine anybody else playing this role. Mm-hmm. Also a little fun fact, the Café de Toulon. I, I just said <laughs> two. I don't know what the number is. The Café de Toulon? Yeah. That is a real place. Um, it's, yeah, it's in Monmar and I believe that they like had to replace the chairs on the outside because they didn't want it to get stolen. Mm. They also had the gnome from the film at the uh, diner, but that was stolen. So people stop stealing things. Like we can all take a picture with it. Enjoy it for a second. Mm -hmm. Do you need the chairs from the Amelie diner in your house? You're absurd. (laughs) need that gnome you love gnomes so much you're just gonna look at it you can look at it outside the cafe (sighs) and uh our last little fun fact before we just dive right in is that the main colors of the film which are green yellow and red were inspired by the paintings of brazilian artist 
Juarez Machado. Yeah. I hope I pronounced that right. We're going to have a a bit of a time with our pronunciations over the next little bit. I know. (laughs) So bear with us. Um, But this director, Junet. Jean-Pierre Junet, yeah. He didn't have, like, this is the most critically acclaimed international film that he's done. But I haven't seen any of his other films. So if anyone's seen other films from him, DM us, let us know. Do you like them? What your thoughts are? Yeah, because this movie was like very, very stylized. So I'm curious if his other movies have that similar feel to it. Well, I I can tell you a little tidbit that I learned. So he, before this, had directed Alien Resurrection, like in the Alien. Yes, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, series, and it was not well-received at all. Oops. And so he was like, all right, I'm going back to France, and I'm going to do something different. And this was kind of in response to that, where his other movies, I guess, had been more so dark, and this one was, like, super light and full of joy and all about, like, the pursuit of happiness. And it also kind of – because there's a lot of elements in this movie of, like, French wave cinema – It also kind of mirrors the birth of French Wave, which were all of these independent French filmmakers who wanted to kind of reject the Hollywood style of film and kind of do something a little more experimental. And so him going to Hollywood, it not working out, and then him going and doing this more experimental movie mirrors the birth of French Wave, which I thought was very cool. Oh, fascinating. Turns out there's films uh, in different styles aside from you know, the films that are made in the United States. Aside from the talkies. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hollywood, a baby. (laughs) Well, before we head into this movie, we just want to let you know that we are continuing our Patreon. We are honoring our contracts with the patrons. And (laughs) this month we are doing, as picked, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, which I've never seen before. So I am excited to dive in. Yes, and that will come out the second Wednesday of the month. And if you want to hear that episode, you can always join the Patreon. It is $5 a month, and you can just click the link in our bio. Well, with that being said, should we just entrer right into it? I don't have another one for this movie. Beautiful. Perfect. So we open up with our narrator informing us it is September 3rd, 1973 at 6.28 p.m. and 32 seconds. A blue bottle fly capable of 14,670 wing beats a minute landed on Rue St. Vincent, Montmartre. At the same moment on a restaurant terrace nearby, the wind magically made two glasses dance unseen on a tablecloth. At the same time, a sperm with one X chromosome exited Raphael Poulon, made a dash for the egg in his wife, Amandine, and nine months later, Amelie Poulon was born. Wow. So whimsical already. Yeah, it's like, oh my God, so many coincidences. What is life but a series Mm. of events? Yes. So we then get to meet Amelie's parents. Uh, her father is an ex-army doctor who now works at a spa. We zoom into him and there's a little title card that says, tight lips equals hard heart. <laughs> His dislikes are peeing next to somebody else at a urinal, uh, catching scornful glances at his sandals. And they show him wearing socks and sandals. 
and wet swim trunks that cling to you. Mm-hmm. He likes peeling off wallpaper, lining up all his shoes and polishing them, and emptying his toolbox, meticulously cleaning it and putting everything back in. We then meet Amelie's mother, Amandine. She is a school mistress and has always had shaky nerves, and this title card says facial twitch equals weak nerves. She dislikes getting wrinkly fingers in the bath. When someone she doesn't like brushes her hand and pillow marks on her cheek in the morning. She likes figure skaters' costumes, polishing the floor with her slippers, and emptying her handbag, meticulously cleaning it, and putting everything back in. So we see Amelie as a young girl, and the narrator tells us, like all little girls, she wanted to be hugged by her dad, but he only ever touched her when giving her a monthly checkup. And this rare physical contact made her heart race, which led her dad to believe that she had a heart defect (laughs) and she was deemed unfit for school and homeschooled by her mother. And I'm like, Oh my God. That's insane. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So she was deprived of playmates and had to retreat to her imagination where records were made like crepes And we see a record being spread out like a crepe with the little wooden thing. And the neighbor's comatose wife has chosen to get all her life's sleep done in one go. (laughs) And we see this comatose woman like pop up and like wink as if Amelie and she have this understanding. And we learn Amelie has one friend, her fish blubber, who due to all of the stress of the household became suicidal And we see the fish just like pop out of his bowl and wiggle on the floor. And Amelie screams at the top of her lungs, but her parents do manage to get him out from under the fridge. But her mom like freaks out and she's like, I can't. So they take Blubber to this nearby park and um, dump him out into the stream. Yeah. So sad. Her only friend. So to comfort her, Amelie's parents got her a secondhand camera and we see Amelie taking pictures in the street and like the surreal elements kind of keep progressing throughout the whole film. But for example, like Mm -hmm. the clouds are in the shape of a teddy bear and stuff like that. So she's taking pictures and we see two cars crash into each other right when she takes a picture. And for some reason that I'll never understand... This neighbor is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to terrify the fuck out of this little yeah. child. And he goes up to her and starts yelling at her and tricks her into thinking that her camera click is what caused the accident. That's pretty insane. I uh, I also thought when I saw that, I was like, am I missing something? But he was just being incredibly cruel. Yeah. Just deciding to play a prank on this six-year-old child. So she's petrified and sits on the couch staring at the TV, racked with guilt because she sees all these news reports about a fire, two derailments, and a jet crash. And she's like, oh my god, I've been taking pictures all day. Oh my god. Those were all because of me. So eventually she realizes that she has been fooled. And she does get her revenge by sitting on his roof and unplugging his TV satellite like on and off during the big football game. So at least she got hers. Yeah. Later on, one day in the future, Amelie and her mom go to Notre Dame to light a candle for a baby brother. And I was confused 
I was wondering if this was like someone that they knew who their baby died or if like her mom had a miscarriage or something. I thought it was just like they were praying for her to get pregnant, I thought was what it was. Oh. Like, oh, let's go light a candle and fascinating. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But later on, as they're walking out of the church, we hear the narrator say, three minutes later, comes not a baby, but a tourist from Quebec bent on ending her life. And this woman jumps off of the church and lands on Amandine and kills her instantly. Jesus. Pretty insane. So Raphael in his wife's death becomes even more reclusive and obsessed with building this mini shrine for her in the yard to like showcase her ashes. Days, months, years go by and Amelie dreams about being old enough to leave home. And four years later, she does. She becomes a waitress at Le Deux Moulins or the Two Windmills restaurant in Montmartre. Yep. And... It's August 29th. In 48 hours, Amelie's life will change forever. But she doesn't know it yet. Thanks, omniscient narrator. <laughs> um, so we meet Suzanne. She is the owner of the two windmills. She used to be a circus rider, likes athletes who cry, dislikes seeing men humiliated in front of their children. And Georgette is the tobacconist, so... She's sitting at like this cigarette counter in the diner. She's a hypochondriac, hates the words fruit of thy womb. <laughs> Another waitress, Gina, um, her mom is a healer and she likes cracking bones. We see her like throughout the movie cracking patrons' necks and mm. their hands and stuff. And the regular patrons include Hippolito, a failed writer, Joseph, Gina's rejected lover, aka Gina Stalker, mm-hmm. and Philomene, who is a flight attendant, and Amelie looks after her cat while she's away. I love all these little quirky fun facts we get to learn about everybody. It tells us a lot about their personality while being like extremely inconsequential. Right, yeah. So every weekend, Amelie goes to visit her dad, and we see them you know, sitting down for lunch and she tries to encourage him to use his retirement to travel, but he just talks about how when they were younger, him and Amandine always wanted to travel, but they couldn't because of Amelie's heart. <laughs> the fake heart condition that he made up. Yeah, that literally doesn't exist. He like never really fully listens to her when she speaks, which right. is really sad. And he's just clearly like completely withdrawn. So we learn on a Friday nights, Amelie likes to go to the cinema and she tells us she likes turning around and seeing people's faces in the dark and we pan over the audience. They're all like sitting with this very blissful smile on their face and it's a very sweet moment. The narrator tells us that Amelie likes noticing details in movies no one else ever sees. There's like a little fly on a window that she notices, but hates how in old American movies, the drivers never watch the road. This is one of the, like, the first of many times in the movie where they break the fourth wall. Amelie mm -hmm. often looks directly into the camera, and this is definitely a big thing in, in French New Wave cinema where they remind you all the time that you are watching a movie. 
So it definitely adds to that kind of surreal feeling. And also that like Amelie, she is the main character of the movie, but she also knows that she's the main character of the movie. Like I see the narrator as an extension of her own self and her own like romanticization of everything around her. This also like clues us into the fact that Amelie is really observant and Mm -hmm. she is really curious about human nature and other people, but she isn't like an active participant of her own life. Yeah, definitely. So we then cut to Amelie in the middle of having sex, just kind of like looking at the ceiling and the narrator says she doesn't have a boyfriend. She tried it a couple times, but every time it was a letdown And instead, she likes the simple pleasures in life, like plunging her hand into a sack of grain or cracking a creme brulee with a teaspoon or skipping stones on the Canal Saint-Martin. Wow. The simple pleasures. Yeah, it does look very satisfying every time she like sticks her hand into the grains, though. Oh, yeah. I love like putting my hand in a bag of rice. Mm -hmm. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) so... Amelie is in her kitchen and notices her neighbor across the street painting. She turns off her lights and grabs her little telescope, peeping Tom, to spy (laughs) on him. And we learn that they call this neighbor the glass man. He was born with very brittle bones, so all his furniture is padded, and he has stayed indoors for 20 years. We then see Amelie looking at a view of the city And our narrator says, time has changed nothing. Amelie still takes refuge in solace and amuses herself with silly questions of the world below. Like, how many people are having an orgasm right now? And then we get this (laughs) flashing orgasm supercut montage. And then Amelie just looks at the camera and goes, 15. (laughs) (laughs) So on TV, on August 30th, 1997, An event occurs that changes her life forever. I forget what she's doing. I think she might be cooking or something. And then... She's doing her skincare, yeah. Oh, yes. I forgot. Um, Love the studio apartment life. (laughs) (laughs) So Amelie hears on the TV the news about Princess Diana passing away. And while in shock, she drops the cap of her, like, rose water bottle or her something. Her glass, like, little <laughs> yeah. elixir bottle. It's so pretty. <laughs> I know. It's gorgeous. It's just like, oh, oh, this antique little perfume bottle. Oh, yes. This, this skin tonic that I have right. that I purchased at Le... I guess what's the French word for pharmacy? Is it literally just pharmacy? I don't know. <laughs> but I've I've heard about French pharmacies before, and I've been yeah. seeing a lot of TikToks about them. And I'm like, I need to go to France just for the pharmacies. The last time I was in France, I was obsessed with getting like as many skincare products as mm-hmm. I possibly could. And I love like Avan, Lux Neuroli, like just the nicest little oils and mm. supplements. And uh, you can get like really good retinol there. Tretinoin, that's the one a lot of people use. Yeah, I've been in the market for a good tretinoin. So if anyone in North America knows of a good tretinoin, hit me up. (laughs) You could probably get it, the one from France on like Amazon, but I don't know what the markup Mm. is. Yeah, I'll have to take a look. Yeah, all the little French uh, skincare recommendations send them our Mm -hmm. way. The creams and jellies. but Exactly. (laughs) So as this little gorgeous glass top rolls about <laughs> on 
again, the gorgeous tile floor, Mm -hmm. it bumps a little uh, gorgeous tile (laughs) on (laughs) the bottom of the wall. And we think that the like Princess Diana stuff is going to be what we focus on, but it is not. It's the tile that gets moved. Mm -hmm. And um, so Amelie gets down on her hands and knees and notices the tile being knocked loose and opens it up to find a small memory box hidden in the wall. And she opens up the tin and there are these like old photos, some little toys, basically things that had been hidden for 40 years. So in that moment, Amelie decides she is going to find the box's owner and give him back his treasure. If he was touched, she'd be a regular do-gooder. If not, too bad. Wow, a girl has a mission. Mm-hmm. So Amelie goes to one of her older neighbors downstairs. I think she also like works for the building. I couldn't quite place exactly what her. Yeah, I think she's like the landlady or like the super. Yeah. Yeah, because I think they reference her, at least in the subtitles, as concierge. Yes. But I'm curious what the actual, like, French meaning is for that. I'm sure there's a lot that is lost on us in this movie by just, like, reading the English subtitles. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But they did pretty well. Like, I noticed that the subtitles, if they were saying, like, a little quip or something, they Mm -hmm. would um, translate it in a way that was also like a little quip it wasn't just like word 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 yes for sure so she goes to this woman and asks if she knew of a boy who lived in her flat in the 50s so she invites her in for some port and this is so not related but i just got these tiny little glasses the other day (gasps) um that are french oh my god they're actually french this is crazy how it all ties together i was in (laughs) the village of thorsby in alberta which is the village that my grandparents lived nearby where their farm was close to. And we were at the senior center for like this kind of family reunion for my grandmother. And inside the senior center was a little thrift store. And I was like, let me um, see cute. what treasures I could possibly find from the old ladies of Thorsby. And I found right in the front, this set of t- like six tiny little red glasses That you would use for something like port or sherry or like an aperitif, you know, something small. And it was $10 for the set. And I was like, oh, my God, what a steal. And then the lady is like, oh, everything's half off as well. A steal. You're basically stealing. And I was like, you're joking me. So I'm looking through this (laughs) thrift store. And I only had a carry-on. So I was like, I really can't bring much. But then I also found this small crystal wine decanter. Oh, that beautiful. was $7. Just kidding. It's $3.50. So I, oh got, my gosh. I got this set of six little glasses and my little wine decanter. I paid $8.50 and I brought them home. And I did look up these glasses because I just, all I knew was that they were from the 70s. They're French. So I just Googled like small red French glasses, 1970s, and they came up immediately. Oh, nice. And I saw people reselling these on Etsy for like $90. So. Very whack shit. Very whack. I paid five. So that's my little tidbit is that now I need to start drinking port. So I have something (laughs) to use these glasses for. (laughs) Amazing. Or you need to go to more thrift stores and then resell. Yeah, be a scammer. (laughs) Yeah, be an absolute scammer. (laughs) 
Uh, so anyways, they go in for some port and this woman, I'm just going to call her the landlady because I oh, assume that's what Mrs. she Wallace. is. Mrs. Wallace. There we go. So she says that she moved in in 1964 and there have been many boys and was like, oh, have you never heard the story of like how I lived here? Her husband worked for an insurance company and he had an affair with his secretary. But they use, like, the nicest hotels around. I think she says something like, oh, she would spread her legs, but it had to be on satin sheets or something like that. Mm -hmm. So her husband then started swiping money from work, and then they ended up running off to South America together. Crazy. Then, in 1970, there was a knock at the door saying that her husband died in a car crash in South America. She then shows Amelie some of her husband's letters from when he was in the war and reads her little excerpt and asks Amelie if anyone has ever written her love letters like that. And Amelie says no. And then eventually she's like, oh, yeah, to answer your question, by the way, um, ask Collignon, the grocer. He's lived here all his life. Mm -hmm. She's like, I just needed someone to vent to. I just had to perform my monologue for somebody before I could give you the answer. (laughs) And she's like, now that you passed the troll toll, here's what you actually have to do. <laughs> yeah. This is the next step in your quest. Mm. So Amelie heads over to the grocer, Collignon, and Amelie sticks her hand in some grains when he comes over and she asks if he knew who lived in her flat in the 1950s. And Collignon says... I was two in 1950 and says he was the same mental age as his employee, Lucien. And this guy is just absolutely getting shit on every time Kong Young talks to him. He's so Literally the sweetest man in the world and just gets Mm -hmm. berated. He's very sweet and shy. It's unclear if he has a learning disability or if he's just a shy guy. And it really does feel like um, a lot of like the mishaps that he makes on the job are just incited because he's being spoken to so horribly and then he gets like nervous. Yeah, Um, exactly. But he like treats him like an idiot. And Mm -hmm. he says he's no genius, but Amelie really likes Lucien because he treats each endive like a precious object. It's his way of showing his love of good work. That's such a sweet sentiment. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I just got like struck by how sweet that is. Yeah, he really cares about his job as a grocer. He like has a great appreciation for the fruits and vegetables and really tries Mm -hmm. to like pick the best ones to give his customers. Yeah. So Collignon does give Amelie his mother's phone number so she can touch base with her and, and find the person that she's looking for. Yeah, so Amelie goes to Colignon's mother's house, and a through line that we see throughout the movie is whenever she spots a good-looking stone for skipping, she'll always, like, slip it in her pocket for later. Just one of her simple pleasures. And when she gets there, Colignon's parents get into this fight because the father is senile, and apparently he used to punch metro tickets and now every night he'll go and like punch holes in all her plants which is always <laughs> funny and Colignon's mother looks through all her files and she finds that in that apartment was the Brudotto family from Pas de Calais so now Amelie has a name 
And the next scene we see, she's in the metro station when she just hears the sound of some beautiful music and decides to follow it up to the platform where an old man is sitting and listening to his portable record player holding a cup. And Amelie puts some money in his cup, then notices this man fishing for something underneath the photo booth. His name is Nino Quinn Campois. Campois? How do you say it? Can Like can the the Q is like yeah. a, a can sign sound. So can Kenkampois. Yeah. And we bwomp, 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 get this informational flashback moment. While Amelie had no playmates, Nino had too many, and we see him being bullied at school. Five miles apart, they both dreamed of having a sibling to spend all their time with, and Amelie and Nino share eyes, give, you know, some eye contact before she runs away. Hmm. Kindred spirits, maybe? Right. I don't know. So Amelie goes to visit her dad, and he is repainting an old garden gnome to add to Amandine's shrine in the garden. And he mentions that it's something that her mom always hated, and now they can be, like, reunited to reconcile. And Amelie asks her dad if he found a precious relic from his childhood, how would he feel? And he's just like, oh, this gnome, like, this isn't for my childhood. He just keeps talking about that and doesn't actually address Amelie's question as per usual. It's interesting, though, that she always goes back to visit every weekend, Mm -hmm. despite his kind of, like, ambivalence and self-centeredness. So we go back to the two windmills where Gina is cracking a customer's neck when Georgette yells at the customers to close the door because she's both cold and allergic to car fumes. So she is hyping herself up, going and spiraling. Yeah. Meanwhile, creepy Joseph is recording Gina's laugh on his little tape recorder. And Suzanne is like, give up, like go to another bar. You Stop are harassing her. her. <laughs> yeah. At work. So Amelie then goes into the little phone booth at the cafe, looks in the phone book, and finds the address for Dominique Brodoteau and asks to leave work early. Mm-hmm. So she then goes on a mission to find Dominique Brodoteau. There are three different ones in the phone book. So she rings the first one's doorbell and it turns out to be a young guy. So obviously not him. And she lies saying that she's here for a petition to canonize Lady Diana. Diana is such an like weird little through line throughout this whole movie. Every once in a while, it'll just pop up and be like, oh, yeah, she just passed away. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, a part of the coincident coincidental nature of the film or if it's because it was such a big thing that happened that it felt necessary to like make it feel realistic yeah i think partially it is it was a huge thing when it happened but also i think that there is a sort of likening of amelie to diana because like diana had such a reputation of like doing a lot of charity work and being like a very kind hearted person that was very empathetic and cared about a lot of people. 
And we see those same qualities in Amelie as well. So I think that they're they're trying to like draw some lines between the two of them. Mm. If I had to guess. But also maybe maybe the director just had like a big affinity for Diana. Right. I know I know my mother did. She loved Whoa. Diana. I feel like a lot of um people like our mother's age really were invested in in Diana. Mm-hmm. The people's princess. But she then goes to the next Dominique Bordeauxto, uh pretending to be there for the census, but this time it's actually a woman who seems like interested in Amelie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then she goes to the third and asks this lady, oh, I'm here for Dominique Bordeauxto. And she's like, oh, you just missed him. And they we see him being carried downstairs in a coffin. Insane. So, yeah. Back in her building, Amelie is going up the stairs to her apartment when the old man from before, the glass man, opens up his door and says she's pronouncing the name wrong and invites her in. So Amelie cautiously follows him in and she's like, this is the first time I've met you after living here for five years. He says he's fussy about who he meets because most people are creeps. And he introduces himself as Raymond Dufayel and Amelie starts to introduce herself But he says he already knows who she is, where she works, and her failed conquest for Bredoteau. It's it's toe, not dough, like Toto. Yeah. And Amelie compliments his painting, and he says it's a Renoir recreation and shows her this closet of paintings. He says he's painted the same one every year for the past 20 years, and the hardest part is the expressions. So this man is just hunkered down, mm-hmm. recreating Renoir paintings. Like, yeah. fascinating. And Amelie notices the video camera in his window. It's pointed at a clock outside and linked to his TV, so he doesn't have to set his clocks. And Very smart. it's an Omega <laughs> constellation in case you're into clocks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was like, why is this on TV? And then... When he said that, I was like, oh, it's just a video Mm -hmm. Um, because he doesn't want to wind his clocks. It's so funny. But he sits back down at his painting and says, after all these years of recreating this painting, the one he can't quite nail is this woman. She's drinking some water in the middle of the boat, but she feels like she is on the outside. She's not there. She's somewhere else. And Amelie suggests she's just different from the others. And Raymond says, when she was little, she can't have played with many other children. Then he gives Amelie the address she's been looking for. I didn't write it in the notes, but in case anyone was wondering, the painting is called Luncheon of the Boating Party. It's from 1881. Mm. So Amelie goes to find the one and only Dominique Bretodeau. And we see Dominique, he goes to buy a chicken every Tuesday morning, and he likes to roast it and have it with sautéed potatoes. And then after carving it, he loves to pick the hot carcass with his fingers and eat some of the extra meat. But not this morning, because this morning he'll go no further than the phone booth. So Dominique hears the the, like, the ringing phone, goes in to answer, and Amelie immediately hangs up. So Dominique is like, okay, that's weird, whatever. And he looks down and sees his old tin can 
filled with all his treasures. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Amelie is watching him from a bar window across the street, and we see Dominique tear up as, in a flash, his whole childhood comes back to him. Whoa. So Dom decides to go into a bar. He orders a cognac and tells the bartender that the most amazing thing just happened. It was like a guardian angel called him into a phone booth. I love how it's Tuesday morning and he's like, give me a cognac. And I'm right. really sitting there drinking a glass of wine. <laughs> right. And another one. How français. And Dominique says that life is strange. To a kid, time always drags. And suddenly you're 50 and all that's left of your childhood is a rusty box. Then he turns to Amelie and asks if she has children. But she just like shakes her head. No. And he says he has a daughter about her age. Uh, they haven't spoken in years, but he heard she had a baby named Lucas, and it's time he looked them up before he ends up in a box himself. So he asked Amelie what she thinks, and she just, like, downs her glass of wine to avoid talking. Yeah, she. I mean, she really is doing all these deeds very selflessly, completely in the dark, secretly, doesn't want any recognition for them. I think also partially because... She doesn't really like attention on herself, but... Yeah. Yeah. So as Amelie walks down the street, she has a feeling of complete harmony. It was a perfect moment. She breathes deeply, and an urge to help mankind engulfs her. So as she's walking, she comes across a blind man with a cave, and she helps him cross the street and describes all the sights along the way in like a very romantic way, not just like, oh, here's a mailbox, here's a thing. She's like, oh there's this man and he's wearing this hat or like this woman and she has this expression and really just like giving him a full picture of this very lively street. Um, there is a very, it is a very like sanitized version of Paris. Like we don't have any yeah. graffiti anywhere. The streets look very, very clean. But again, I think that really plays into the kind of surreal nature of this movie and anomaly seeing everything with kind of a dreamlike childlike haze. Mm-hmm. The director did note that when they were filming on location, that they would all work together to like clean up any litter or graffiti mm -hmm. or what have you um, in order to kind of match the rest of the tone of it being very surreal and immaculate. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So she leaves this man by the metro and we see him just glow with joy. Back at home, Amelie is making dinner when she notices Raymond eating alone in his apartment. So she repeats Raymond's words about the woman in the painting and how she can't relate to people and is a lonely child. Amelie starts eating angrily while watching TV. It's a program about people going to the beach for the summer. And then it cuts to uh, covering Amelie Poulain, godmother of outcasts, Madonna of the unloved, finally succumbs to exhaustion. So continuing this daydream, we see like Paris, the grief-stricken uh, streets, the vast throng of mourners lining the way for Amelie's funeral in silence with the measureless sorrow of newly orphaned children. <laughs> they really <laughs> frame her as like a Mother Teresa in mm -hmm. this moment. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what a strange destiny for one who gave her all, yet took joy in life's simple pleasures. 
Like Don Quixote, she pitted herself against the grinding windmill of all life's miseries. It was a losing battle that claimed her life too soon. At barely 23, she let her young, tired body merge with the ebb and flow of universal woe. As she went, she felt a stab of regret for letting her father die without trying to give his stifled life the breath of air she had given to so many others. <laughs> Which is like him traveling finally. Yeah. Love the, again, the super melodramatic, surrealist mm-hmm. daydream. I found it so delightful. I mean, I really love when movies take a very strong stylistic direction or stance. And this movie is that times a million. That lines up with you liking Balls Lerman so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love just people who make like make strong choices. I find it just so mm-hmm. interesting because... There's so much there's so many like options and so many avenues and there's like no bounds to what art can be created. And so when people just yeah, kind of stay in like the confines of what is not necessarily traditional but what is just more common, it's fine and I still enjoy it, but I really love to see people like take risks and have a super strong point of view, mm-hmm. especially aesthetically, but also tonally as well. And this movie does both of those things. Like We haven't really talked about the cinematography at all, but one thing that I found really interesting about this movie is that the camera is almost always moving. We almost never have a completely stationary shot. Either it's panning or it's zooming at every moment. I actually didn't notice that that much, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely um, the director really created a world where it feels like sometimes completely normal and then sometimes like romanticized or having these elements of like surrealism um and yeah i do feel like a lot of american movies are really afraid to take a specific tone Mm -hmm. um you don't really see movies that have like a really gratifying color palette where it's like it feels fake it's always usually just like very clear and um the most you'll see is like kind of it being saturated, but mm-hmm. nothing as dramatic as the um, Amelie. Yeah. And especially these days, movies are just, and TV as well, everything is just so dark, like visually. I can barely fucking see anything. That was my main <laughs> issue when I watched the Batman in theaters or Batman. Or oh my gosh. Called. That I was, was like, I can't see anything. Insane. <laughs> that was insane. I did not like the new Batman movie, but that's a conversation yeah. for another time. Yeah. I thought it was um, too long, but. Yeah. <laughs> so fucking long. I'm like, let me fucking see your movie. I want to see what's going on. Right. Why is it so dark? <laughs> but anyways, so Amelie, she goes to her father's house, but the chain on the door is locked because she's gone like in the middle of the night. And she's about to throw a stone at his window to like wake him up when she looks at the gnome on her mother's shrine and decides to chisel it out of place. She steals it. I guess that's where people got the idea to steal the gnome. But she (laughs) runs back to the train station. Unfortunately, it's too late at night. It's already closed. So she decides to sleep in the photo booth, clutching the gnome. And I mean, I haven't been to Paris since I was a child. So I have no recollection of this. Uh, Are there that many photo booths just in train stations? Is this like very normal? I would say I see them all over Paris. Mm. Like the passport photo booths 
are definitely mm-hmm. prevalent, which is so crazy because like you'll see photo booths in America, but they're like fun photos. Yeah. These are like specifically like, oh, you needed some like photos. You need an ID. For, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah. Yeah. They do have them pretty frequently. Oh my gosh. I would go in and take so many photos just all over the city. Yeah. yeah. Well, the next time I'm in Europe, I really want to like you know, look decent one day and get the little photos. So that way the next time I need to renew my passport, I can actually use like a Mm, nice photo. Smart, smart. Also, the gnome thing that we'll see with it later. Mm -hmm. So the traveling gnome was inspired by a rash of similar pranks played in England and France in the 1990s. In 1997, a French court convicted the leader of Front de Liberation de Ne Jardin, Jardin, Garden Gnome Liberation Front, okay, mm. <laughs> of stealing over 150 gnomes. And the idea for the traveling gnome was then later used in an advertising campaign for an internet travel agency, Expedia. Whoa. I'm pretty sure that was where they have like the gnome, yeah, which I had no, no idea about. You had no idea about it? <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea that that was based off of anything. But all I all I thought about was, oh, who else do I know who's stolen a gnome? Jess Mariano. <laughs> that was the only <gasps> thing that came to my mind. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Brunette's stealing gnomes. <sighs> so in the morning, Amelie makes it back to Momar, and she once again sees Nino digging for something under the photo booth. And we see Amelie's heart beating very fast. We see like this... Um, the inside of her chest, essentially, Mm. and like the boom, boom, boom of her heart. And Nino pushes past her and starts running after someone, I assume to give him the like photo Mm -hmm. from the uh, booth. And Amelie follows him out of the station. You know, he's chasing this man up the stairs outside. He gets into his car and Nino like jumps on his electric bike to follow him but in the process, he drops his bag. So Amelie picks it up, ends up looking through it, and finds a photo album filled with tons of photo booth pictures, either torn up or discarded by their owners, but carefully reassembled and preserved by Nino. She's like, wow, he's weird like me. <laughs> yeah, weirdos <laughs> unite. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the two windmills and a woman is buying some cigarettes from Georgette, whose disease of the day is that it's so smoky in here she can barely see. Meanwhile, Suzanne gets into this conversation with a man at the bar about men and women in relationships. And he's like, oh, I can tell you've never been in love before. And she says, I was once. It shortened my leg. Turns out she was in love with a trapeze artist who dropped her Mm -hmm. last second and she got like trampled by a horse. Yeah. Crazy. insane. And the old man's like, well, I still think true love exists. And she's like, no, I don't disagree with you. You know, I've spent 30 years behind this bar. I could give you the recipe. All you have to do is take two regulars, let them both think that the other one fancies them, and leave it to simmer. It never fails. And so Amelie Mm. sets her sights on who? Georgette and Joseph, the stalker. Weird that you would want to set anyone you remotely like up with a stalker. Yep. Yeah. That's just my first takeaway from that idea. 
Because once a stalker, always a stalker. Once an unwell man. Um, usually probably an always, <laughs> yeah. always an unwell man. So, yeah. So when Joseph asks for a refill, Amelie goes over and she's like, you've hurt enough people. And Joseph is like, oh, Gina can defend herself. And I'm like, you are the one of the worst people. Mm-hmm. Probably the worst possible ex you could be assigned with. Absolutely. And she's like, no, I'm talking about Georgette. Like, she craves your attention, but you only have eyes for Gina. <laughs> Homily, stop. This is the one part of the movie where I'm like, Amelie, you're not doing a good thing here for Georgette. Not at all. But at the end of the night, they're closing up the cafe. Gina leaves because she has a date. And Georgette is like, oh, she has a date. Whoever he is can't be worse than nutty Joseph. And Amelie is like, no, he isn't nutty. He's in pain. And Georgette is like, well, he must be a masochist coming in here every day for the past two months. And Amelie is like, don't tell me you haven't noticed. Georgette, he comes here to see you. He always sits right at the table across from your counter. Amelie. Amelie, here's one thing. (laughs) Here's one thing. And she's like, this will be a great idea. And this is where we remember that Amelie is but 23 years of age. (laughs) Right. Right. So in the morning, Amelie goes to buy the morning paper when she sees an article about a 30-year-old mailbag that was found by climbers on a glacier in Mont Blanc. And the cashier comments on like how sad it is that Diana died. She was so pretty. And Amelie's like, would it be less sad if she was old and ugly? And the cashier's like, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Then the cashier notices Joseph and comments on how sad it is. He's still chasing Gina. And I'm like, it's fucking traumatic that he is chasing her. Mm -hmm. Why do we feel bad for this man? Yeah. But Amelie says he's chasing someone new now. And the cashier tries to discern like who it is and is shocked to come to find out It is Georgette. Me too, girl. So we go to Raymond's apartment and Amelie shows him Nino's photo album. And they see that there's one man whose photos are represented 12 times. Like this man is just Mm -hmm. going to every photo booth in Paris. And Amelie wonders. Yeah, it does seem like that, huh? Yeah. (laughs) Why would he take his photo all over the city only to discard them? It's like it's some sort of ritual. Raymond says maybe he's afraid of growing old and this is his only consolation. But Amelie is like, oh my God, I've cracked the case. He's dead. He's dead and he's scared of being forgotten. So he uses the photo booths to remind people what he looks like. He's a ghost. And Raymond is like, oh, wow, you know, wanting to be remembered. These painters, they have it made. They're long dead, but they'll never be forgotten. Like looking at his his Renoir painting. Mm-hmm. And Amelie then suggests that the girl with the glass in the painting, maybe she has that expression because, I don't know, she's distracted thinking about somebody. You know, maybe it's a boy that she felt an affinity with. Hmm, who could she be talking about? And Raymond asks, oh, you're you're saying she would rather imagine herself relating to somebody who's absent than build relationships with those around her? And I was like, Hmm. damn, damn. (laughs) Shots fired. Mm-hmm. 
And Amelie says, maybe she tries hard to fix other people's messy lives. And he says, what about her own messy life? Who'll fix that? And Amelie says, it's better to help people than a garden gnome. Yeah. So a uh, little little back and forth, a little mm, cryptic conversation. Little tete-a-tete, if you will. Yes. <laughs> Un petit tete-a-tete. <laughs> In the morning, Amelie puts a very bulky package under Raymond's doormat before noticing some keys sitting in the neighbor's door. So Amelie grabs the keys and goes downstairs to give them back to Colignon. But he is too busy berating Lucien for being like a slow worker. And Amelie decides in that moment not to hand over his keys and walks over to the key cutters to get a copy made. Then she puts the keys back in the door and walks off with the copy she had made. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So meanwhile, Georgette, she stops at the same newsstand that Amelie did. And the cashier says, oh, Georgette, you're looking so good. You know, a woman without love withers like a flower without sun. And Georgette's just like, okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Walks away. Meanwhile, Amelie goes into work where the failed writer Hippolito, Hippolito, I think, yeah, he is talking about how he's gotten another rejection on his manuscript, and they ask him about his book, and he says it's about a man who keeps a journal, not about what happens to him, but about disasters that might happen, and he gets so depressed that he just does nothing. Meanwhile, across the cafe, Georgette and Joseph keep catching each other's eyes. Mm. Back at the grocery, Amelie sees calling on berating Lucien again for being slow. So she decides to utilize her new key to go into his apartment, fray his shoelaces, um, swap his foot cream and toothpaste, switch his door handles the other way around, add salt to his liquor, set his clock back. And she leaves his apartment just daydreaming at being Zorro, like slashing a Z on his door. Yeah, we see like this Zorro element come up again later as well, where Amelie is liking herself to Zorro, who's like, you know, defender of of the people and the innocent. So she sees herself as a vigilante as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Amelie is then taking the train to see her dad, and she's actually reading uh, Hippolyto's manuscript and reads the line, without you, today's emotions can be the scarf of yesterday's. And the conductor's like, what? And she reads it again. He's like, all right, give me your ticket, please. (laughs) (laughs) So Amelie has lunch with her dad. He asks about work for the second time that day. And asks if she's keeping well. And like we mentioned before, Amelie is like, oh, yeah, I feel a change. You know, I had two heart attacks and then I had to have an abortion because I did crack while I was pregnant. But other than Mm -hmm. that, I'm fine. And he's just like, good. So (laughs) she asks if something's wrong. He says nothing. And she points out the missing garden gnome. And her dad is like, oh, let me show you. So he shows her this Polaroid of the gnome in Moscow that he was just like sent in the mail with no explanation. And Amelie says, maybe he wanted to see the world. And her dad is just like, I don't get it. I'm so confused. Yeah. 
So Amelie leaves later on and goes back to the train station where she sees posted all over the photo booth the missing bag from Nino. And uh, she tears one of the posters off. And the narrator tells us any normal girl would call the number straight away, meet him at a cafe, return the album. Then she'd know if her dream was viable. It's called a reality check, but it's the last thing Amelie wanted. Ain't that the truth, sister? Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> so we then go to Kanyo, who has woken up in the middle of the night because of his alarm clock that Amelie has messed with. Little fiasco. Mm-hmm. He goes to open his bathroom door, but like the handle is a different shape than it usually is, so he keeps missing it. He's like, oh, that's weird. Whatever. He then goes to brush his teeth using the foot cream instantly gags. He ties his shoes. We can see that one of his shoelaces is all frayed and he goes to open his grocery store and notices it's dark out. And there's like cats playing around in the rubbish. And he checks his watch. Curious. Hmm. In the morning, Lucien quietly sells vegetables to the townspeople and they're like, what's what's up? And he's like, the boss is asleep in the cauliflowers. <laughs> so he finally gets to like do his thing yeah. uninhibited. And everyone's having a great time buying from right. him. It's going very well. Meanwhile, at two windmills, Joseph comes up to Georgette to ask for a scratch card. There's like clearly some tension there. And he's like, oh, I've never done this before. Like, how does it work? And she suggests that they do it together. But neither of them end up winning. And he's like, oh, I'm unlucky at the cards. Mm. And he's like, well, got to go back to work. And I'm like, your work being <laughs> stalking? Yeah. Your work being stalking Eugenia and and using a tape recorder? He clearly doesn't have a job. Right. <laughs> yeah. How are you paying your way, my guy? But Maybe he works nights. I really have no yeah, idea. Who knows? But Amelie does decide she's going to call the number on the flyer from the photo booth. So she calls and it's like a porn palace. And porn. they're like, they're like, oh, are you over 18? And she's like, we? Oui. And they're like, oh, are you shaved? And she's like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah. I think he says something like, the fur show doesn't sell very well or something like that. And so she obviously hangs up thinking, wow, this is a pervert that's left his number on this photo booth. Mm -hmm. So we go back to Lucienne who drops some bottles off at Colignon's apartment and then runs into Mrs. Wallace. She is down in the dumps per usual, but Lucienne is actually feeling great and yeah. his beard's are really high. No one screamed at him today. Exactly. So he goes to Mr. Dufael's apartment to drop off some groceries and notices a package under his doormat. So he goes in, he gives Dufael the groceries, but he gives him a little surprise. Um, he actually like offers him an artichoke and has him pull on it and open it up and it's caviar inside. And he also has some foie gras in the basket and some champagne and he says, courtesy of Mr. Collignon. And Dufayel tells him to forget Collignon and has him repeat, 
calling on down the john, <laughs> calling on a big moron, calling on dead and gone. And they have this little like back and forth of these phrases. Mm-hmm. And then Dufail's like, okay, that's enough for today. <laughs> and Luciana hands him the package from the doormat and leaves. So uh, Raymond puts in the tape and he watches and it's footage of the Tour de France. And we also see a horse running with the the bikes and we also see a scene from a film where uh there's a dog who's doing acrobats with a human and then we see this choir where everybody else is in like church choir robes and we see this like one rocker in front like playing the guitar and singing and this is obviously from amelie and she's showing all these different examples of there being one outsider in a group just like her and like the woman with the glass and uh, Raymond is, he's pretty stunned. He's pretty shocked by what he's seeing. So we go back to the cafe and we see Joseph and Georgette doing another scratch ticket, but neither of them win. And Joseph then goes, oh, may I? And reaches over to like seemingly get something off her blouse, but there's nothing there. And he fully just like touches her breast. Yeah, like her cleavage. I was like... What? Yeah. <laughs> he literally goes like, may I just reach, p- puts his hand over. May I grope you like real quick? Yeah. May I touch your, may I caress your breast? Yeah. Please? At your workplace. And he tells her that she's beautiful when she blushes. And she says, oh, it's just my dyspepsia. And then Joseph yeah. <laughs> goes to the restroom. And Amelie is like, I need to interfere further. So she decides to put a (laughs) cup of coffee on her tray and deliberately spills it all over Georgette. So she also has to go to the restroom. And Georgette is like, oh, my God, you've scalded me. And she rushes to the toilet. And, of course, she runs into Joseph. And they just immediately start making out and having, like, very loud sex in the bathroom. So Amelie notices that items on the counter are literally shaking and the neon toilet sign is blinking and they are literally like having sex against the bathroom door, which has like a partially see-through window. Yeah. And Georgette is like noticeably shrieking and squealing. So Amelie has to turn on like the espresso machine just to mask her orgasm, her screaming orgasm in the middle of the restaurant. And I'm also like, there's no way Joseph is is doing that, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> right. So she's feeling pretty good about herself mm-hmm. and later on visits Dufayel and looks at his painting. He offers her some tea and cookies and asks about the boy the girl saw, referring to like the painting and the girl's expression. And Amelie tells him they haven't met again. They're into different things. And he tells her life is like the Tour de France. You wait and it flashes you by. You have to catch it while you can. Hmm. And this does resonate with Amelie because she goes to visit the sex shop, uh, which is just, you know, filled to the brim with dildos as per usual. And we see this woman, Ava, come from behind the curtain and ask Amelie if she needs help and... Amelie says that she found this book in the street called The Number, and Eva's like, oh, Nina will be so glad. And Amelie asks if Nina is here now, 
but Eva says no on Wednesdays he works at the fun fair. So she asks how long Nino has had this collection, and Eva says, you know, he's had it ever since she got him this job last year. So he's been doing it for a while. Prior to that, he actually collected photos of footprints in wet cement. And Eva says he's a funny guy. When they met, he was a Santa Claus. And, you know, before that, when he would hear a funny laugh, he would tape it. So he he's a collector. He likes to collect memories and, and tokens and, and, you know, different things about people. And Amelie is very delighted by this because she, too, is a bit of an oddball and says, oh, you know, it must be hard for his girlfriend. And, Subtle. And Eva's like, oh, no, he never keeps them long. You know, times are hard for dreamers. A woman then calls out to Eva for the coffees and she tells Amelie she has to go and holds out her hand for the album. But Amelie is like, oh, no, no, I have time. Like, I can go down to the fun fair and give it to him myself. And Eva tells her he's at the ghost train to ask for Nino Cancompois. So Amelie goes to the fun fair. She finds a good skipping rock before entering and then goes up to the ticket taker to ask if Nino's there. And she's like, yep, his shift ends at 7 p.m. And Amelie asks to just like go in to meet him beforehand. But the cashier is like, yeah, you can go in. It'll be 20 francs. That's pretty pricey. This is a fun <laughs> fair. Okay. Yeah, it is pretty expensive. So Amelie does end up paying and she goes to the ghost train. So yeah, she sits on this ride. There's a lot of smoke and like, ooh, heebie-jeebies going on. Yeah, definitely. We see like actors in these suits dressed like statues and skeletons. And as the ride progresses, a skeleton, Nino, starts to like moan at Amelie and touches her neck. But she just like closes her eyes, listens to the, the moaning and groaning and, you know. She's not scared at all. <laughs> also, I mean, maybe it's different in France, but at least like in North America for haunted houses and things of the like, you're not allowed to touch people. Like that is the one rule is that you're not allowed to touch them. I know for like Halloween Horror Nights at Universal and stuff, like the actors are not allowed to touch you. So they can get really close, but they will not actually have physical contact with you. Yeah, yeah. Because that just opens it up for, like, the actors potentially being hurt. <laughs> so I was just going to say it's a very, like, sensual moment mm -hmm. when he's, like, caressing her face and yeah. moaning in her ear. Yes, for sure. So later on, after Nino's shift ends, he walks to his bike where he sees a note on the back of one of the photos from his, from his album. And it says, 5 p.m. tomorrow, Mamar Carousel. Mm. That night, the note that Amelie has left Nino begins whispering to him while he's trying to sleep. Um, the note was written on the back of like a photo set. So the man in the photos begins talking and asking Nino if he wants to know about her. And they tell Nino she put the note in her shirt pocket next to her breast. Ha ha ha. And Nino asks if she's pretty. And they're all like, oh, yeah, she's pretty, she's pretty, she's pretty. I love that they get into an argument where one of them's like, she's beautiful. And the other ones are like, no, she's just pretty. No, she's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> Nina asks what she wants from him. And they hypothesize, like, maybe she wants money or she also collects photos or she wants to trade them for a one-eyed man with glasses. 
And Nino turns over and tries to sleep with the men. Tell him he's a dope. She's in love. He says he doesn't even know her, but they tell him that he does in his dreams. Wow. I love that both Amelie and Nino clearly have this very active imagination. I mean, we they set this up in the beginning with Amelie not having any friends. So like she would often resort to her imagination where her toys would come to life. And we see like in yeah. her apartment and stuff, the the pictures on the wall and like her lamp all talk to each other. And Nino has that same thing as well. So it just, you know, heightens their, their cosmic connection. Mm. So Nino goes to the carousel in Walmart. And while he's waiting, a woman answers the payphone behind him and says, oh, excuse me, sir, the call is for you. So he answers the call and Amelie cryptically tells him to follow the blue arrows and hangs up. She's literally at the the phone, just like not even 10 feet away from him. So Nino follows the blue arrows drawn in chalk right past Amelie all the way up these stairs, all the way to a man who is pretending to be a statue and he's pointing and Nino's just staring at this man's finger and a little boy goes up and is like, you're a fucking idiot for staring at the finger. Look at what he's pointing to, dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) So Nino sees that the statue is pointing at a pair of binoculars. So he goes up to the binoculars and in it, it's pointed directly at where his bike was. And he can see Amelie putting the album back in the satchel on his side of the bike. Mm-hmm. So Nino rushes down trying to catch Amelie, but by the time he gets there, she's gone. So he checks the book, everything is still intact, and then the same telephone rings. So he answers and she says that she knows the stranger in the pictures. He's a ghost who only appears when the film is developed. And when a girl takes a photo, he moans in her ear while he fondles her neck. That's how he got caught. So Nino asks who she is, and she says, turn to page 51. So Nino opens the page, and it's a series of photos, like, of Amelie in costume. Like, she has these silly glasses on, and basically it spells out the words asking if he wants to meet. So Nino gets on his motorbike, or his little, you know, electric bike, essentially, drives off, and Amelie smiles direct to camera. She loves a little, like, game. She loves a little quest. It's really crazy that it's not just, like, you know, I'm shy. I don't know how to approach a guy. Not sure what to do here. But Mm. she's like, I'm going to make a little thing. A shoots and ladders. Monopoly. (laughs) Little wordplay. A little puzzle for you to figure out. Mm Mm-hmm. The next scene we see is Raphael, Amelie's dad, receiving a letter in the post and it is his gnome in New York City. Oh, my God. He's traveling the freaking world, dude. I also, like, couldn't quite figure out how this was happening because I forgot I about confused. the Easter yeah. egg that's planted at the very start of the movie. Yeah. Um, but I was like, is she just doing, like, is she holding up the gnome in front of, like, a, a picture and just, mm-hmm. like, leaving it? So it was very satisfying when we do get the reveal of how this is happening. Right. But I, too, was confused, like the father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really like the reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, and meanwhile, in her building, Amelie notices Mrs. Wallace's door open, and she grabs the letters from her ex-husband. Hmm. Mm. Amelie does have a tendency uh, for theft, I will say. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. She's like a very um, light hand and mm-hmm. a bit of a shit stirrer. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit of a meddler. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so meanwhile, back at the diner, Georgette is knitting at her cigarette counter while Joseph smiles at her. And he tells everyone to listen to this. Apparently, he's he's reading off the paper. A child of six uh, drove off in a pedal car while his parents slept, and he was found on a highway in Germany because he told the police he just wanted to see the stars. And Georgette is like, wow, ain't life beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> and Suzanne says to Hippolito, love, the only bug I haven't caught and Gina is just, you know, happy to no longer be stalked by Joseph. So a win for everybody. Yeah. Back at the, the what do you call it? The porn palace. Mm-hmm. Um, Nino <laughs> asks Eva. Is it Eva? I assume Eva? it's Eva being given it's French, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Nino. Yeah. Nino asks Eva for information about Amelie. And she says, you know, she's average height, pretty for her type. And he's like, fair, dark. And she says she wasn't a redhead unless <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And Ava tells Nino she casually asked about his girlfriend and she told her that he wasn't interested. And Nino's like, no, you didn't. But Ava's like, why do you care? Like, you don't even know her. And Nino tells Ava it's a mystery. But Ava tells him he won't find a mystery here. I'm like, Eva, jaded. Yeah. <laughs> jaded by the porn palace. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we go back to the grocery and a woman is asking for nectarines and Lucian says, these are the prettiest ones. And Colignan is like, oh yeah, trust him. He's an artist. He goes home with a ton of my unsold stock. And he's like mocking Lucien and saying he sells leeks all day and paints turnips all night. He's a useless vegetable. And the narrator says, with a prompter listening in each cellar window, shy people would have the last laugh. And Amelie turns around and says, you'll never be a vegetable. At least artichokes have hearts. And like she imagines herself saying this and everybody laughs at Colonial. I was also confused by this where I was like, wait. Is real life imagination, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. she wishes that she could be quippy and yeah. say it to his face. Yeah, but alas. So we go back to Colignon's apartment, and Amelie does what she knows she can do, which is absolutely like mind fuck Colignon. <laughs> yeah, and she swaps out his slippers for like a smaller pair, changes a light bulb in his lamp, puts a metal pin in the light cord, and changes like the presets on his um telephone meanwhile dufayel is watching all of this through binoculars so he's becoming like privy to her little pranks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. meanwhile in amelie's apartment she reads through all of mrs wallace's love letters from her late husband and mr wallace talks about how much he longs to be with her and their plans to meet So Amelie decides to make copies of the letters and she cuts out like excerpts and pastes them onto a new letter and photocopies that. She then soaks it in like coffee or wine or something and hangs it up to dry to make it look old. And 
she looks down at Dufael with his with her little telescope and sees him once again painting the girl with the glass. Meanwhile, Mr. Raymond Dufael looks back up at Amelie's apartment and sees the letter hanging to dry. So he's he's getting wise to her schemes. Mm-hmm. So calling on opens the door to his apartment suspiciously. And he sits down, slides on his slippers, but they're too small. And he starts mm. breathing heavily. He's like, where? Like, what fresh hell is this? Mm-hmm. And he opens the door to another room and sees the lights on, but the plug is unplugged. So he goes to plug it in, and it just, like, totally sparks up. And Kanyan sits down to make a phone call. He's, like, going to call his mother. But... When he dials the preset, it is a psychiatric helpline. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh, you malicious lady. Just absolutely gaslighting the fuck out of him. Yeah. So he pours a glass of liquor to calm his nerves, but it's tainted and he just spits it out. Yeah, he spits it, like, directly onto the camera. Love, love a spit take. Mm-hmm. So Amelie goes back to the train station once again, where she sees a bunch of signs posted. And it's like of the photo that she put in Nino's book of her stomach. And it just says when and where. It's a pretty risque photo. Yeah. So she like Mm -hmm. rips them all down. She's like, oh, my God. no!" (laughs) We go to a party shop where um, Amelie decides to go in and. Meanwhile, a man leaves his home on Rue, Rue Le Corbe, Le Corbe, Le Corbe, I would guess. And 26 minutes later, Amelie is at East Station. Simultaneously, the man in red shoes parks outside. It's exactly 11.40 a.m. Amelie inserts coins into the photo booth and takes pictures in a Zorro costume. She exits the photo booth and the bald man who Amelie has been calling a ghost through the entire movie appears. <gasps> mm-hmm. Mon Dieu. What did you say? Mon Dieu, which is like, oh, my God. Dang. Okay. <laughs> and then at this moment, only Amelie has the key to the mystery man. Why is he there? Who is he? Why did he show up? Mm. We don't know. Only Amelie knows. Yeah. Oh, la, la. So, (laughs) Mrs. Wallace, meanwhile, goes to check the mail, and we see the mailman right there. He's like, oh, madam, this is for you. Hands her the letter. She opens it up, and it says, hello, Mrs. Wallace. We recently recovered a mailbag that was lost in a plane crash on October 12th, 1969 on Mont Blanc. Please find and close the forwarded letter. We apologize for the delay. And it is the fake letter that Amelie has put together saying, Darling Mado, I'm in exile. I can't sleep, can't eat. I think of you endlessly. I know I've made the mistake of my life. I turned down that woman's money, and if all goes well, I'll soon be able to afford a house. I dream of better times ahead when you'll forgive me and join me here one orange-colored day. Your ever-loving, Adrian. And she is, you know, touched by this letter that he loved her all along. And Mm -hmm. she goes up and she kisses the framed photo she has of him on the wall. And it's clearly made her feel a lot better. So, yeah, 
Meanwhile, in his apartment, Dufael paints his picture and Lucien arrives to give him another package. And Lucien tells Dufael that Mrs. Wallace received a letter from her husband 40 years late. Then he sits down to paint and we see like Lucien's sketches of vegetables. And he tells Dufael he's not very big on still life, but Dufael tells him to work on his lean lair, fat over lean and always. And they talk about how he heard a new star will be born soon and that in America, when rich people die, they take their ashes and shoot them into space. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. So Lucien asks if um, they'll like do the same to Lady Di's ashes. And Dufael just is not in the mood to hear about Lucien's little notions Mm -hmm. and he fully explodes at him and he inserts the video he received and watches as like babies learn to swim there's um, a man with one leg and he's like dancing and Dufael hears meowing and looks up outside to see Amelie who looks back at him and then retreats in her apartment so the mailman drops off yet another letter for Raphael. This time the gnome is in China, so he puts the Polaroid with the other ones. Meanwhile, we finally get the reveal of how this gnome has been traveling around the world. Ugh. Turns out she's been just passing the gnome off to her flight attendant friend whose cat mm-hmm. she watches. And she's like, oh, you know, I'm happy to do it again. You know. Harm is done. Everyone calls me Snow White because I carry this gnome (laughs) around. So that is the mystery solved. It was very satisfying. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nino continues to put up flyers. He goes to a photo booth and does his little sweep, collects the discarded pieces. It's Amelie dressed up as Zorro asking him to meet at two windmills at 4 p.m., and Nino calls to Eva and asks if um, she can stand in for him at four. She really had faith in him sweeping up those little pieces under mm-hmm. the phone booth. Yeah. She was like, I know my man is meticulous about his hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so at the cafe, Amelie is waiting for Nino. She looks at the clock and he is 10 minutes late. So Suzanne asks Georgette what's wrong with Joseph. And she says, oh, he doesn't like it when I smile at other men. So they're clearly having a tiff right now. But back to Amelie, the narrator tells us that Nino is late and Amelie can only see two options. Either he didn't get the photo or a gang of robbers took him hostage, which resulted in a high-speed chase and a car accident where he lost his memory. Then an ex-con picked him up and mistook him Mm -hmm. for a fugitive and shipped him off to Istanbul, where he met some Afghan raiders who took him to steal Russian warheads, but their truck hit a mine in Tajikistan, and he survived and took to the hills and now has become a Mujahid? Is that how it's called? Mujahid. Mujahid? I don't know. But like... But yeah, he's with a sheep. (laughs) Yeah. And this like insane story does Mm -hmm. definitely remind me of Amelie's vivid imagination and how important it is to her to have these like whimsical notions because she was like so isolated growing up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it kind of just reminds you how unadjusted Amelie is. Yeah. It's definitely like a defense mechanism 
because 100%. her brain is like either he just never even got the message or this incredibly elaborate whatever, whatever, when the other actual option would be he just doesn't want to meet you. Mm-hmm. But she yeah. doesn't want to accept that reality. So, And I'm like, we've all been there, sister, where it's like maybe he died. Who knows? <laughs> He's dead. Yeah. So that's sad. Yeah. <laughs> so Amelie refuses to get upset over a guy who'll eat borscht all his life uh, in a hat, in a hat like a tea cozy. So she's not going to bother herself about it. But just like that, Nino walks into the cafe. So he goes to sit down, orders a cup of coffee with Georgette, and Amelie makes his coffee. Nino looks at the door, just expecting Amelie to come in. And um, the next person that comes in is actually just like a gorgeous woman, but she goes to sit down with her boyfriend. And Amelie is just too shy to introduce herself. So she waits behind the glass that's right behind his booth and just stares at him. But he turns around (laughs) and she pretends to write like, like soup of the day or something yeah. on the board. Menu du jour. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she realizes he is understood. And we see like a close-up of him putting his spoon down, putting his finger on some of the sugar that fell onto the table and licking it. Gross. <laughs> I know. <laughs> then taking out the photo of Amelie and he turns around and asks if this is her. And Amelie, after making this guy through the – Go through the most rigmarole. <laughs> it's like, who no. me? No. That's no, not I'm me. not like one of those girls are all boobs and no brains. And Zorro in photo booth, that couldn't be me. Right. But he insists and he's like, no, like this is you. She only this has the is- most like recognizable mouth in of the history course. of France. And the haircut as well. Yeah. So Amelie concedes and she just kind of like shrugs and walks off. Then she encounters Gina and writes a note for her. And Gina goes, clears off Nino's table and slips the note in his pocket. But of course, (laughs) Eagle Eye Joseph sees this and takes it extremely personally, thinks it's a direct Mm -hmm. front Mm -hmm. and like scoffs. And Nino looks back at Amelie and leaves, and she melts into a puddle on the floor. Oh, my gosh. This is actually, I think, the only one of the only times in the movie that we actually see Nino and Amelie speak to each other. Yeah. They almost never exchange words. And this is like a very dialogue-heavy movie. Like People are talking constantly throughout this movie. So the fact that there is so much silence between the two of them – definitely like heightens the the feeling that this connection is you know it's beyond words it's something like very innate to the both of them yeah. it's like this chemical thing what is it like a kindred soul or yeah like a kindred spirit yeah kindred spirit mm-hmm. so we go back to raymond's apartment and him and amelie are investigating the painting of the woman together and he asks her if She's looking at the man, and with his hand up, Amelie says yes. And he asks if she's in love with him, and she says yes again. And Dufael suggests that she take a real risk, and Amelie says she's devising a stratagem, 
and Dufael says she's fond of stratagems. In fact, she's cowardly, and that's why he can't capture her look in the painting. Yeah. Wow. Amelie is trying to, like, change Dufael, but mm-hmm. Dufael is trying to change Amelie. Yeah. And even though that they're, like, talking about the painting, this is, like, too close to home for her. Yeah. So she goes back to her apartment and, like, watches a film, and the character is talking about how Dufael's attempts to meddle are intolerable, and she's just, like, you know, has, like, a very, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right face. Yeah, how dare he meddle <laughs> as right. if she's not been doing that. <laughs> and this character tells Amelie, you know, if she wants to live her life in a daydream as an introvert, it is her right to mess up her life. So we see Amelie go to the Seine. She skips some stones in the water. All the shots of her like skipping stones are really beautiful, especially the one in the beginning mm-hmm. where she's standing at like the bridge of this little stream. It's absolutely stunning. And I think, um, well, I read that she doesn't know that actual actress doesn't know how to skip stones. Mm-hmm. So it's all CGI yeah. <laughs> of the yeah. skipping. But yeah, it's it's really nice. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, there are so many little details that just make the film roll along so much better. You feel really connected to Amelie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, she is a very quirky individual, but it doesn't feel the same as, like, other, like, quirky individuals that you see more so in, like, American movies. Like, she's not giving you, like, a Zoe Deschanel type of thing. I, yeah. Yeah. And it I feels think it's very genuine. Yeah. And I think it's because the the whole world of the movie is very quirky itself. Like everything that we learn about other characters, we learn about their little quirks. So it's not like, oh, just Amelie is crazy. Like we can tell she's an outsider, but also that everybody else has their own thing too. Definitely. And it also, like I think a big piece of that is the performative nature mm-hmm. where Amelie, or oh my gosh, Amelie is such an introvert that most of these moments take place in private. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel put on for other people. Yeah. And she also like is the main character and the romance is very much on the back burner because again, she has almost no scenes actually with Nino and it's more so about like yeah. the the connection that they have and the the quest that she puts him onto to find her. But <laughs> she really makes him work. <laughs> yeah, she does. But we're not seeing her through the lens of anyone but her own mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whereas I feel true. like when there are quirky characters in American romantic movies, it's usually through the lens of a man. Mm-hmm. But anyways, um, we then see Raymond. He is recording Lucienne on videotape and, and asks him if for deliveries he keeps keys to all the apartments. So he may be going on a quest of his own. Yeah. Then we see Amelie getting in the photo booth and putting some like objects into the coin slot and then calling in that the machine is broken. Meanwhile, Nino is working at the sex shop and just keeps thinking about Amelie. He goes over to the peep show they have and asks Samantha to cover for him. She's like, what? I can't hear you. (laughs) She's like dancing. And he takes out a piece of paper from his pocket, writes out like a note about um, having her cover for him. But when he holds it up, he sees that Amelie has asked him to meet at the station at 5 p.m. 
So he goes to the station. He looks around for Amelie. We see her spying on him through a window. Nino turns back to the photo booth and sees red converse inside the photo booth. Mm. And then the man's photos drop and Nino realizes it's the man, the guy, who, the bald man who he's been following all over Paris. And so he whips open the curtain and the man is like, oh, yeah, it's, al- it's almost back up and running. He is the technician who fixes the photo booths all mm-hmm. over Paris. So that is why there's a photo of him left behind everywhere because he has to do a test shot. So... Ah. <laughs> So Again, satisfying. so satisfying. Yeah, it's like the most simple little bow that ties it all together, but it's just filled me with joy. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So Nino smiles at him kind of crazily because he obviously has a big attachment to this man who has no idea who the fuck he is. <laughs> Amelie then gets the courage to walk towards Nino, but she gets like stopped short because a giant like – uh, I can't remember. It's like a truck, like a trolley with right, stuff with like a bunch by. of boxes and stuff. Yeah. So she stops and turns around at the last second before Nino can see her. But she does get the courage to turn back around. But when she does, Nino's gone. Mm. Back at the two windmills, Georgette tells Gina that Joseph keeps staring at her. It's making her ill. And <laughs> <Same>. Joseph, is, <laughs> yeah. Joseph sees them talking and, like, speaks into his fucking tape recorder. He's like, female conspiracy. Oh, my God. So Gina massages Georgia and tells her, I think she says, like, she's tender and then wishes her good luck because she'll need it. So Gina speaks to Nino and he asks her about the note. And Gina tells him it wasn't her, like, it's clear it was Amelie. And he asks for her and Gina says, you know, she's at her father's, but like this is, and this translation I'm sure is off, but she Mm -hmm. says something like this bothers her and asks to speak with him um, once she gets off at 6 p.m. And Joseph speaks into his recorder and says, docking station scheduled. Oh my God. He's horrendous. Literally an insufferable little man. Mm -hmm. So... Back at Amelie's childhood home, Raphael hears the gate creak, so he walks over to close it, but when he turns around, he sees that the garden gnome is back in its place on the shrine. (gasps) Oh my god. So we go back to the, the cafe, and Joseph confronts Georgette about a guy who came in three times in one day. I'm like, he's a smoker. That's why he came in three times in a day. Right. <laughs> and Georgette yells that he's making her go nuts and he's giving her a rash. And Suzanne tells Joseph to just lay off. And he's like, oh, it's her conscience that's making her feel this way. That's why she has this rash. And Georgette is like, you know what? I've had it. I'm going home. So she leaves. And Suzanne tells Joseph to stop smothering her. Women need air. And Joseph says, oh, if you give women air, they blow you off. And Hippolyto says that fresh air is actually healthy. Okay? How novel. Yeah. And Joseph says, cram it, failure. (laughs) Wow. So Joseph pushes him. They start fighting when Amelie walks in and asks what's going on. 
And Suzanne says, you know, Georgette walked out. And Joseph is like, yeah, Gina walked out too with that man. I saw her put a note in his pocket. And Amelie is like, oh, no. And I couldn't tell if, like, she's worried about Gina revealing her identity or if she's nervous that, like, Gina is interested in him. I couldn't quite Yeah, I was wondering if... um. It kind of felt like she thought Gina was interested yeah, in him. Yeah, because she gets very upset. Mm-hmm. So we go see Gina and Nino who are walking together, and Gina tells him she's worried about him because she likes him, and the men she usually likes are mentally unsound. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I'd like to know more about you. He's like, you know, ask me anything, shoot. And she begins saying these cliches, like absence, and he's like, makes the heart grow fonder. It's a sin to steal a pin. (laughs) And she tells him that at home they say, a man who knows Proverbs can't be all bad. I am curious what the actual Proverbs are in French because I'm sure they're like actual French idioms, not Mm -hmm. like those ones specifically. I remember there was one like idiom or term that we learned in my French class. And I, this could be very wrong. So if you're French, Please correct me. This is just what my teacher told me. But there's a term called l'amour vache, which translates to like cow love. But it's the type <laughs> of love where you're constantly testing each other. Ooh. Is when you'd be like, oh, it's l'amour vache. So fascinating. There you go. I could be wrong. Take that with a grain of salt. But I was also like, this yeah. is such a tenuous thing mm-hmm. to determine someone's character. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So Amelie gets home. She's feeling very dejected. And Mrs. Wallace asks Amelie if she believes in miracles. And Amelie says, not today. Mm. And Mrs. Wallace tells her about, you know, the letter that she received, proof that her husband loved her. And Amelie just, like, tears down the flyers on her wall that she had taken from the train station. She then starts cooking and... In her mind, she has a little daydream about Nino stopping at the grocer, getting yeast for her famous plum cake, and then going back up to her apartment, caresses her beaded, like, entryway into the kitchen, and she hears the beads, like, move around, so she turns, but it's just the cat. It's Mm. not Nino. And then Amelie begins to cry. She feels like she's lost the, the one shot at love that's presented itself to her. Then we hear the doorbell ring. It's Nino, and Amelie presses her ear against the door. And they both have their ears pressed on either side. It's like a very beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. And Nino slides a note under the door telling her he'll be back. Then Amelie looks out the window and sees him walk across the street. So the next thing she knows, her phone rings, and it's a man telling her to go into the bedroom. And Amelie turns on the TV. It's Dufayel urging her not to let this chance go by. Eventually, her heart will become as dry and brittle as his skeleton. So go get him. Amelie runs and opens her front door to chase after Nino. But he's there. (gasps) And she takes him inside and gently, like, kisses him on both cheeks, then on his eye. And then she points to her own face And Nino kisses her cheek and her neck and her eye, and they begin to make out. It's so intimate. 
Yeah, it's definitely very like innocent and mm-hmm. um it's been so long. Like they've been on this journey yeah. for so long. And again, no words are exchanged. Like it's clear that yeah. their connection is beyond that. And I don't think we actually even see them kiss on the lips. I think we only see their silhouette like in the window. Yeah, we don't see them. Mm-hmm. Or actually, I think I mean, we see like a mini kiss on the lips, yeah. but not them making out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like this this cheek, neck, eye combo. It's very like tender and intimate mm-hmm. and like very emotionally loaded. And definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. And Dufayel sees this happen from his apartment and Lucian is there as well with his camera on Amelie's window and he's like, don't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we later on see Amelie and Nino cuddling in bed. We then watch as Hippolito walks down the street and sees the quote from his manuscript, without you, today's emotion would be the scarf of yesterday's. So Amelie has, you know, painted that for him. We then see um, Renato giving some chicken to his grandson. He's reunited with his family. We see that Raymond finishes his painting, but this time it's in his artistic style. It's not in Renoir's, which is cool. Mm -hmm. We see that Raphael has finally decided to travel. He takes a taxi to the international airport. And back at the fun fair, we see this machine twisting candy in a shop window. And our narrator says it's September 28th, 1997 at exactly 11 a.m. At the fun fair, near the ghost train, the marshmallow twister is twisting, while in Villette Park, Felix Lambier learns that there are more links in his brain than atoms in the universe. At the Sacré-Cœur, the Benedictines are practicing their backhands, and then we see Amelie riding on the back of Nino's motorbike, off into the sunset. Finn! <laughs> Finn. <laughs> what wow. a delightful film. Yeah, it's a really unique romantic comedy, dramedy. Mm-hmm. Um definitely not what I thought it would be at all. Because yeah. that style the style of like um imagination versus reality and the caricatured personalities, like mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be much more twee and like yeah. very simply made, but um, there was just like a lot to hold on to, especially I feel like I'm not as much of an introvert as Amelie, mm-hmm. but it is very much an introvert's journey into trusting oneself and putting yourself out there, even at the risk of being rejected. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I love that it really focuses on, the small, simple pleasures in life. Like, yeah, I love that scene where she's describing to the blind man everything that's on the street mm. and how he gets filled with so much joy. Yeah. I think it's so special. And it does have some of these more like grandiose styles of, of filmmaking, but ultimately feels very down to earth. And also well, it feels like... Oh, oh sorry, go No, go ahead. I was just going to say it feels like how a human would feel the events that's Mm -hmm. happening to them because obviously like our, the way we intake meeting someone or falling in love or like tasting a really great dish. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a magical experience. 
that isn't always able to be captured in a film because the camera is like this third Mm -hmm. person, narrator, whatever you want to call it. But it becomes very personal um, also because of Amelie's connection to -hmm. the camera. Yeah, it does feel like she's inviting us in to her world by acknowledging us. We become a part of it. And I love getting to see the externalization of these very like small, intimate emotions with the more surreal elements, like seeing her heartbeat or yeah. seeing her melt into a puddle. And I Ugh. think it it works because the film is so stylized. It doesn't feel out of place because they've set up this very surreal world from the jump. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has pieces of our own world that we can like identify within it. And one thing that we didn't really talk about throughout is just like the set dressing in this movie is amazing. Like every scene just feels so full and packed. Like there's so many tiny little props everywhere. Like Lots even Georgette's cigarette counter, like it's an entire wall just packed with cigarettes. Like there's not any wasted space in the movie at all. Mm-hmm. In that regard, it did remind me a bit of Wes Anderson, just mm-hmm. where the entire screen is a part of every scene. Um, but obviously different different ways that it's exacted, but it did mm-hmm. feel like I was there. It feels like really authentically French. I guess I don't know if French people who grew up there would disagree with that, but um it does bring about a lot of like what I think a lot of people love about France is the people and like the milling about in the street. And even when she goes through and describes everything to the blind man. Mm-hmm. And she's like, there's cheese for this much and there's chicken over here and there's this um, other thing like that's roasting and the flower shop is flowering and like all these little details of these like beautiful pieces of life that are just a part of like walking the streets of Paris. Yeah. (laughs) Ah! And you know, like we said, it is a very sanitized version of the city. It obviously doesn't look that beautiful, (laughs) but... It do be smelling like New York sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But like, I will say Paris is cleaner than New York. Yeah. That, I mean, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. That doesn't surprise me at all. But um, yeah, like, for example, there's one moment. I don't think we talked about it, but she's like in the train station and there's a homeless man sitting on the ground and he's like wearing fairly nice clothes. He has a dog and she offers him money and he says, no, thanks. I don't work on Sundays. Yeah. So it's like that kind of very like glossed over romanticized version of the city where it's like even the homeless are like ah i don't need your money i don't work on sundays you know we we punch yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so i i'm curious um what people who live in paris like what their thought or Mm -hmm. in momage specifically like what their thoughts are on on this movie and if they feel like it's either a service or a disservice to kind of show this more manicured version of the city but as an outsider, I definitely enjoyed getting to to see the beauty of the city highlighted. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just I think it's such a delightful movie that feels like so it feels so well planned out. I know they did mm-hmm. a lot of storyboarding for this that makes movie. Sense. And you yeah. can tell like everything is very intentionally planned, which is actually pretty different from French New Wave, where they did like a lot of improvising. This movie is very meticulously planned out. So things come together in a very satisfying way at the end. Yeah. And I think Audrey Toto, Tato, Tato, Um, Tato, Audrey Tato 
does an incredible job of being Amelie. Mm -hmm. She's so dynamic to watch. Everything from the small facial movements to her gestures and the silent moments where you can just read what she's thinking so easily Mm -hmm. um, without it being overdone is immaculate. And um, yeah, I just think it was very, very well cast. And I love Danino too. He has like this boyish charm Mm -hmm. and the eccentricities feel just so natural in the way he inhabits them. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked the film, mm-hmm. and I think also a lot of the camera angles really help emphasize people's like dominant features or like the most interesting characteristics of their face. Like for Audrey, there's a lot of emphasis on both her very big, like expressive eyes, and also her mouth, her and teeny tiny mouth. Yeah, we get to see <laughs> like th- there's people with like pretty exaggerated facial features and we get to see Mm -hmm. like with the different camera angles them really highlight those which i thought was pretty cool yeah i really enjoyed it it was it was a great watch definitely something i'll watch again for sure he has another well-regarded film um delicatessen it's a black comedy and this city of lost children is the other one that i'm Mm. seeing but yeah, I, I would be curious to see more of his work. Although you mentioned this was kind of a departure from other things he worked on. So I wonder if there are similarities yeah. or if it's very, very different. So Yeah, I am curious about like his, his work after Amelie, w- what he kind of pivoted to. Because I know the movie he made after that, A Very Long Engagement, mm-hmm. is more of like a war drama yeah, it's about World War One. Yeah, so gonna have to gonna have to check it out. Yeah, very interesting uh, body of work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, wow. shall we give her a rating? I'm gonna give it a solid eight. Yeah, I was gonna give it like an eight, eight point five. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I really want to watch it again. It's like a really nice. Um, love story without it being like she needs the guy like yeah. like it's all about the guy it's really kind of like a coming of age mm-hmm. so for sure yeah and even just to like have it on and see the beautiful color grading and the beautiful mm. like sets and everything and the music is really lovely too the score uh, is beautiful the theme is so beautiful yeah. I'm going to like listen to it while I'm walking down the street with like a coffee or if I really want to lean in, literally get a bike with a basket and a baguette (laughs) and some flowers and just take my way down the street. But the Francophile in me is like screaming. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you are French, let us know what your thoughts are on Amelie. And if you're not French, also let us know. We would love to hear everybody's thoughts. But we hope you enjoyed our our lovely foreign film episode. If you want a little more, you can always follow us on Instagram. It's movies that raised us. You can follow us on Twitter at MT or I guess X as it's called now. Jesus. Weird. Uh, <laughs> MTRU underscore pod. You can follow us on TikTok at movies that raised us pod. And you're always welcome to send us a good old fashioned email 
at movies that raised us at gmail.com. Um, we do check our email. We promise if you didn't get a response or something, just like DM us yeah, on like, hey. Instagram. And we'll be, be like, like, hey, sorry. <laughs> and we'll be like, I'm so sorry. It's hard being a girl boss. But with that being said, we'll see you next week for another international film. Yeah. I'm Mo. And I'm Christina. And our theme song is by Garrett Schmidt. Bye. Bye.